Syria, the foreign secretary says talks on taking further military action there are taking place. I think we're, we're still a pretty long day's march from, from getting there, but that doesn't mean that uh, discussions are not going on, because they certainly are. The chief of the air staff tells us the challenges of the job which are keeping him awake at night, and we hear from the latest in a quick succession of Labour shadow defence ministers. The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has said discussions are underway about further military action to alleviate the crisis in Syria. Answering questions from MPs, Mr Johnson said military action was still a pretty long day's march away, but he said he thought most people, including the US Secretary of State John Kerry, felt talks with Russia had basically run out of road and they wanted to see a new set of options. It is right now that we should be looking at, again, at the more kinetic options and the military options. But, you know, we, we must be realistic about how these, uh, in fact, work and what is deliverable. And certainly you can't do anything without a, a coalition, uh, without doing it with the Americans. Uh, and, you know, I think we're, we're still a pretty long day's march from from getting there, but that doesn't mean that uh, discussions are not going on, because they certainly are. Well, the Prime Minister's spokeswoman said Theresa May will weigh up very carefully any military or other options put forward to end the crisis in Syria and their consequences. Is the British political appetite for intervention changing then? So if so, what could that look like and what of Russia's view? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov, as well as BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Alexander, first of all, John Kerry and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov are due to talk this weekend. What can we expect from that? Well, it's very difficult to predict anything because the situation on the ground is such that uh, I don't really know how uh, America and uh, Russia can come out with any plan at all, because the previous uh, ceasefire that was supposed to hold for a while at least was broken basically at once, and um, both sides are blaming each other. But it doesn't really matter, because uh, if they can't agree a ceasefire, uh, then how on earth they can progress, I have no idea, to be honest with you. Christopher Lee, is the ceasefire the only way? Because there's been talk of a no-fly zone. You can't have uh, any form of truce without a ceasefire. Um, when you're working on different sides, so for example, what would happen if a Russian plane was shot down by an American plane, etc.? So you've got a, a, a no-fly zone, and who actually who is going to sort of guarantee it? The, the truth is very simple. Um, President Assad is not going to take his foot off the pedal all the time that he is apparently, in his terms, winning because he cannot afford the idea that somebody else could take advantage of any truce or whatever. Also, indirectly, Russia needs Assad to win, otherwise Russia's out of it altogether, and that changes the whole geopolitical structure. So at the moment, no ceasefire, because Assad cannot uh, uh, go with one. There is no way that the Americans get involved, especially, you know, they're going to the polls on November the 8th, uh, and so they will start talking again. 
um, but the way of talking is it has not changed at all and so don't don't be get get disappointed because disappointment is all they've got at the moment Alexander Nikrasov isn't that the reality exactly that that President Assad will not stop what he's doing decimating eastern Aleppo and the Russians will continue to support him well first of all Aleppo has a western side as well which is being bombarded by the rebels practically every day people are getting killed there on a regular basis, children, women. It's the same picture as in eastern Aleppo. So it's a two-sided conflict in this part. It's actually a multi-sided conflict. And the problem is that um, when there are so many parties involved, many, so many countries involved, to blame just one side for all of them doesn't work, doesn't make sense. And that is why blaming uh, Assad all the time and, and Russia together with it's Assad. It's just a reality, though, isn't it, that will continue? Well, the reality is that the, the, the rebels, uh, uh, and among them the terrorists in the eastern part of Aleppo, are being supplied constantly by weapons, by other parties. Well, uh, the Russians accuse Americans uh, of doing that and others, but Americans deny that. The Russians also say that they have uh, information that in eastern Aleppo there are Western advisors uh, helping the rebels to... Uh, stage their attacks, and they, they, they actually name, uh, not name, but they say it's American and other mm. Western advisors. Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee. Let's get this straight. I mean, uh, uh, Alexander's right in one er area. The rebels do not want a ceasefire. When you look at the people who are really pushing for the ceasefires, they are the humanitarian uh, people who are looking for it. What you cannot do is manage a ceasefire. You cannot manage the military consequences of it. I mean, one simple thing, for example, you have a ceasefire. All that happens is that various bodies get themselves, remove themselves into different positions, reinforce their own positions, rearm, take a rest, etc. So the rebels don't want a ceasefire. Assad doesn't want a ceasefire. Not the ideal situation mm. for the United States and Russia to get back together and again. And then you throw into the whole mix of this Alexander Nikrasov, the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson during Tuesday's debate on Syria in the House of Commons talking about Aleppo and calling for people to protest outside the Russian embassy in London. Well, yes, I think that was not uh, a brilliant move by Boris Johnson. And by the way, uh, the Russian embassy put out an image of one person protesting today. And they did various uh, tweets on the day, didn't they? <laughs> Yes, it was counter tweets. Bit, uh, it, it was a bit odd, you know, for a foreign secretary to call people to call on, on the people to protest outside uh, a foreign embassy doesn't doesn't really look good. But um, I must say that Boris Johnson also repeated all the previous accusations about the Russians bombarding that the U UN convoy. Although the footage does show that it was not destroyed from air. I'm, I'm sure we're never going to get sides to agree on, on this. Um, Christopher, I was just wondering um, what the options really are at this stage. If you have Boris Johnson talking about considering further military action, what might that be? Well, the British military, for example, is looking at the whole concept of non-kinetic action. And that is that you don't actually go in with all guns uh, firing. What that comes to, and nobody is quite sure, but it is a concept which they've never used before. I tell you, this is an area that we haven't looked at yet. I mean, I don't mean, it's the French. The French will, are leading on this in many ways in the United mm. Nations. The French have also got some ideas of what you'd be able to do, what you could be putting in position, perhaps from the sea-based, uh, for more monitoring, 
formal uh, possibility if you had to enforce a, a no-fly zone, etc. But look what the French are doing diplomatically. They put far more case towards mm. diplomatic reassurances than, than any of the other countries in the P5, the uh, permanent mm. members of the Security Council. Al- Alexander Nekrasov, briefly, do you think the Russians would be up for non-kinetic action? Well, the Russians understand that until uh, no- November 8th, there is absolutely no point in, in, in negotiating with anybody, especially the Americans. They will obviously be trying to, to be seen as, as finding a diplomatic solution but I think Christopher pointed that out, that, you know, until the elections, mm. nothing will happen. So we just sit and wait and hope that there are fewer casualties than before and the collateral damage is not as great. Oh. But unfortunately, it's a very gloomy scenario. All right. Christopher, Lee, stay with us. But Alexander Nikrasov, thank, thank you. you for your time today. Now, as British airstrikes on Islamic State targets in Syria and Iraq continue, the head of the RAF has told Forces Radio, BFBS, that his biggest challenge is keeping the right people. Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier has been in the job for just three months. Here he is talking exclusively to James Hurst. Well, the messages that I'm giving out are consistent ones that I've uh, done from the start of my uh, appointment, which is emphasising that the RAF's in a strong position. We're operationally heavily committed. Um, We're a growing air force as a result of the Defence Review last year. Uh, And then we've got fantastic people doing a great job on operations uh, and on exercises and in the, uh, the, uh, the home base. Um, But those are also our challenges uh, as well, because sustaining operations at this tempo is hard and we need to ensure that we can continue to do that. Growing the Air Force is going to require us to to change. It's a great opportunity, but uh, it won't come for free, if you like. And we just need to make sure we can continue to uh, recruit, train and retain all of those great people. Of those challenges, which one keeps you awake at night? It has to be the people challenges, is that the, the beating heart of the Air Force are its people. They're what gives us our strength. That's what gives us our capability and operations. That's what will allow us to grow. So I need to ensure that we can recruit and retain all of those really valuable people across the whole force, not just service people in regular uniform, but reserves, civil servants, and indeed the contractors who support us. And as you say, with Operation Shader, the highest operational tempo in a single theatre for a quarter of a century. Is it sustainable? Is there capacity, if you were asked to do something on top of that, to do more? Well, uh, yes, we can sustain our effort on uh, Operation uh, Shader. It's hard work. Uh, there is uh, virtually every force that the RAF has is uh, deployed and uh, sustaining those operations. So it takes a lot out of our people and takes a lot of out of our equipment. But yes, we can uh, sustain it. Um, but, uh, you know, th- this is... Uh, more than we expected to do in uh, the uh, the past. But we need to keep up that effort because uh, those who are our, our adversaries, in many ways, um, they're uh, waiting for us to be able to ease off. And we're determined we're not going to ease off. We'll keep going until the job's done. How concerned are you about the risks of particularly operating in the crowded airspace above Syria, uh, the potential for... Uh, an accidental engagement with, say, Russian planes who are not flying as part of the same coalition. 
We take a huge amount of care to make sure that our operations are uh, de-conflicted. Um, we uh, require others to re uh, do the same uh, activities, put a lot of effort into it. Uh, we work to very strict um, uh, controlled uh, rules of engagement and with the capabilities to avoid those sort of incidents. Uh, so uh, hard work, uh, again, it is, uh, as you say, a very complex operating environment, um, but our crews do tremendously well. well we've also had reports of surface-to-air missiles that have tried to engage, fortunately not successfully. Well, I mean, this is a constant feature of life. I mean, the, this is a complex, but it's also potentially dangerous operating environment that we're in. Uh, all of our operations have been in that uh, that way over the last uh, 25 uh, years. Uh, our aircraft have got the equipment uh, to deal with uh, those threats, uh, and our crews are very well trained to deal with them uh, as well. So it is risky, but uh, we have the measures in place to, uh, to deal with them. As you say, the Royal Air Force growing under SDS, SR 2015. Uh, we'll come on to one of the platforms in a moment, but the people, something like 300 extra, plus you're actually slightly under trained strength at the moment. Uh, the Army has had some real difficulties with recruiting. Are you concerned you might suffer the same thing? Well, the recruiting at the moment seems to be uh, buoyant. Uh, people want to join the Air Force. They look at what we're doing uh, and it's challenging and it's exciting and it's rewarding. Um, but uh, those people that we train very well have very marketable skills and so they have choices. Uh, and so I, I think rather than uh, recruiting, I worry more about retaining uh, those, uh, those great people at the moment. That was the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, talking to James Hurst. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, what do you make of that? OK, uh, retention is, 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 is the thing for all three services. Uh, the RAF buys in people who are, by and large, better educated, higher education, higher education qualifications at the very least, to do that sort of job. Also, they don't need so many of them. So retention is not so much of a problem. And recruitment, he was saying, wasn't a problem either, really. Well, that's, that's, that's part of it. You know, you don't need so many. You can go out and have a look at people, have a look at the market and say, OK, we'll buy that lot in. I think the most important thing is actually keeping an operation going as they're trying to do at the moment. And it's just not one aircraft going over and hope, hope things work. Uh, look at reconnaissance, look at intelligence gathering, airborne reconnaissance and intelligence gathering. That's an increasing difficulty if you're for a future uh, uh, Royal Air Force, and it's also the other thing is the is is engagement with possibly someone like the Russians. That's when you've got to have a whole rules, not just a rules of engagement, but identification, friend or foe uh, operation, and it doesn't work at the moment. But so far, so good, because it's not just one aircraft. You've got a lot of assets up there being able to tell an aircraft you have something at, let's say, 15 miles, four, four points on your port bow or, or whatever. And so, so far, so, so very far, good. So far, so good. Christmas, stay with us. Still to come, one year, four shadow defence secretaries on Labour's front bench. I've spoken to the latest MP in the job. America has hit radar sites in Yemen after one of its warships in the Red Sea came under missile attack for the second time in days. The Pentagon said the sites were on territory controlled by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. Well, now it's reported Iran has already sent two warships to the Gulf of Aden, establishing a military presence in waters off Yemen. Well, let's talk to Francis Guy, a former British ambassador to Yemen and now head of the Middle East region at Christian Aid. Good to speak to you today, Francis. As if things weren't tense enough in the 
region. It now seems that America and Iran are overtly getting more involved in the area. Can't be good news. Uh, no, but it doesn't have to be seen quite like that. I think there's a lot of loose talk around uh, who backs the Houthis and, and what they actually stand for. So OK, describing... t- tell me a bit more then what, how you see it. Um, well, describing them as Iranian-backed Houthis has always been a bit of ex- an exaggeration. I mean, certainly the Iranians have taken an advantage of the situation to to put Yemen into a, a Iran-Saudi context. But actually, if you're on the ground, I don't think people see the Houthis as being particularly Iranian-backed. And the uh, blockade around Yemen is such that it's very difficult for the Iranians to get any arms supplies or any supplies into the Houthis at all. So I think it is unfortunate terminology to be to be calling them Iranian-backed. Um, it is obviously very unfortunate, though, if if American warships have been targeted by anybody in Yemen, assuming that the the warships themselves were in uh, territorial waters and therefore ought to have been free to move, um, you know, through the Red Sea without being challenged. Mm. The Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Farn, has said he would review sales of arms to Saudi Arabia, that thorny issue, if the Saudis' investigation into the attack on that funeral in Sana'a at the weekend finds that civilians were deliberately targeted. Britain's position here is becoming increasingly difficult, isn't it? Well, there's been uh, yes, absolutely. But you know, I don't, I'm not sure that we have to wait for another investigation. The International Development Committee, with the Business Innovation and Skills Committee, did a joint report last month, which was very clear that there was enough evidence already to suggest that the Saudis had violated international humanitarian law. So, do you think um, the Defence Secretary perhaps is wrong to say that if it comes out to prove that the Saudis in this particular situation had deliberately t- is that too too little too late? Well, as I said, there were 119 attacks mentioned in that, of which is our own parliamentary report as having violated international humanitarian law. MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, are clear that at least two of their hospitals have been deliberately targeted. Obviously, targeting a funeral party is yet another potential aspect to it. Of course, if that's the one that we look at and, and say that's the, that's the one that we will reconsider, I'm saying there's enough evidence to suggest that we could have reconsidered before now. Mm. What do you think the international community should be doing at the moment over Yemen? Well, I think what's interesting is if you speak to Yemenis or people that have been to Yemen recently, they're very clear that during the ceasefire that lasted for almost four months before August, people were beginning to back off. People were beginning to realise that the the Houthis were unable to deliver and unable to govern on the ground. I'm talking about in northern Yemen. And that actually the ceasefire um, helped take away support for action against Saudi Arabia and it helped change people's views. But as soon as the bombing started again, people sent their young men back to the front to fight against Saudi Arabia. So the bombing feels like it's very counterproductive as well as being obviously affecting the humanitarian situation on the ground. So I suggest that actually stopping the bombing would be a a good first step um, to stopping Yemenis feeling anti-Saudi and that from there you could could perhaps move things forward. Mm, Just tell me about a little bit about your time when you were in, you were the British ambassador to Yemen. That was the early 2000s, yes. What was it like then? Did you ever think it would end up being like this as it is now? 
don't suppose I thought it would quite deteriorate quite as much. I mean, there were always places, including Sada, where the where the Houthi rebellion started, just as I was leaving, more or less, which were which were out of central government control. So it's never been a place with strong central government controlling everywhere. And there's always been an awful lot of weapons, including fairly heavy weapons, mm-hmm. um, you know, that different armed groups and different tribes had in their back garden, as it were. So it's always, it always felt a bit precarious. But it was, you know, but the president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who is still managing things behind the scenes, um, managed you know, through negotiating with the tribes to keep a certain control on it. Mm. I didn't expect it to disintegrate quite as far as it has, no. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this interview. Christopher? I just, just a thought, apart from the fact that the British are still desperate to sell almost anything to Saudi Arabia, that's an exaggeration, but it sort of picks up the tempo. Just a reminder, the British interest in the area, you go right back until, oh, into the 60s, where British forces had an interest in what was going on in uh, Yemen and because of their protection of the Sultan uh, and north of there. And the People's Democratic Democratic Republic of Yemen were fighting alongside uh, people that we didn't like, I say we in, in, in the United Kingdom. So it's a long stretch that goes passed back to the protection of the Sultan of Oman, which more or less finished, didn't finish until, I suppose, 74, was it 74, with the, uh, with the offensive against the PDLY? Mm-hmm. And so that's our interest. And the British tend to have these historical evaluations as well, and bigger pictures, much bigger pictures of what conflict actually means in a longer term. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Francis Guy, former ambassador to Yemen, thank you very much for your time today. Four shadow defence secretaries in just one year. Now, following a reshuffle of Labour's shadow cabinet, there's a new woman in the job. Her name is Nia Griffith, and she's given her first broadcast interview to BFBS. I met her this morning and started off by asking the obvious question. You are the the fourth shadow defence secretary in just over a year. Is it really the job that nobody really wants to take and can't hold on to when they have it? I think it's a job with immense challenges, but I think there is a way forward, and I think that's really what my challenge is now, is to uh, show that we have a very determined way forward, that we can bring people together who have very different views, and that we can provide a credible opposition and a credible government in waiting. How do you do that when when the public sees such divisions within Labour over defence policy? I mean, Trident, for example, where do you stand on that? Well, I think what's absolutely essential in terms of nuclear non-proliferation is that we, as the United Kingdom, should be taking a much stronger stance on the world stage in terms of multilateral nuclear disarmament. That has been just put on a back burner. Sometimes it's just been used as a fig leaf cover for those who are pro-Trident. I think anybody who is seriously concerned about not using Trident, not having to use nuclear weapons, must do two things. We must look at it in a global way. We must have a multilateral strategy that is meaningful, not a multilateral strategy which just stays on the shelf. But we need to engage with other countries. We need to be looking at ways to prevent nuclear proliferation. But also we need a very strong conventional defence force because things should never have to escalate 
to that sort of level. And if you don't have a strong conventional force, then you run the risk of things escalating much more quickly. But you personally, you're against the renewal of Trident, aren't you? I, in the past, have had serious doubts about the efficacy of the particular um, particular uh, thing that we're talking about in terms of Trident. However, it's a party policy. We've taken votes on it at conference, and we have voted to continue with the programme, and that is a commitment that we will stick to. I don't see uh, party policy changing any time soon because the votes have been quite consistent in conference. How would you convince members of the military that the Labour Party is the party for the military and for defence? Because at the moment they might be asking a few questions, given there have been so many shared defence secretaries recently, mm-hmm. given there's been very pub- public disagreements on policy over things like Trident. How would you convince them that it is the good the party for, for defence? I think, first of all, we are fully committed to the 2% GDP spending on defence. We are fully committed to NATO and our NATO commitments. And I think what is really important for people to remember is that Labour has always, always um, spent sensibly on defence. And we've seen terrible cutbacks in the last six years since 2010, the worst cutbacks we've seen in defence. And I think it's really important that people understand that if you're going to have a good defence of the realm, you need proper resourcing. And I think everyone who serves needs to be aware of that. Mm. You come to this job, uh, you you seem extremely energised. What do you see as your top priority? Very much uh, making absolutely certain that we have that 2% commitment to the armed forces, making sure that we um, really do make sure we have the very best equipment for people, the very best circumstances for them. And on an internal domestic uh, situation, I will certainly be questioning the whole issue of contractorisation. I think that this has been uh, you know, taking over all sorts of areas of the, of, of the uh, armed forces. What would you like um, to change? Well, I think we need to look very carefully at complaints we've heard about um, food. I think we need to look carefully at the way the housing stock is managed. I think we need to look at the way that recruitment has been uh, contracted out. I think we need to look at some of the way that procurement has been contracted out. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are we really using the expertise that our military personnel have? Do you want to bring it more in-house, do you? I would, I would like to have that discussion. I think there's no simple right answer. Some things might be better delivered in-house and some things might not. But I do think that we have to be very careful about what has happened over the past few years, which seems to me it's been about getting things done on the cheap. It seems to me it's sometimes been ignoring the expert advice of the military, and it does worry me that that is leading to potentially um, substandard provision of um, services. So that's a really important area I think we need to look at. That was the new Shadow Defence Secretary, Nia Griffith. Um, Christopher Lee is still with us. Uh, Christopher, what do you think of what she had to do, say? Is she good news? OK, I don't know if she's good news or not, but I mean, the whole idea of defence policy with Labour is, is fascinating because traditionally the armed forces have preferred, on, in retrospect, being under a Labour government. And that's largely because Labour has always seen or used to see the importance of the defence industrial 
uh, position, jobs in the defence industry, the unions were very strong in the defence industry. So that's one of the reasons. The second thing, which it becomes more apparent, is that we have two sides of the military, which is what she's really talking about. You've got to go and look at what it's like to be in the services, um, whether you get the equipment you want because you've got the proper procurement system, or whether you get the food you want because you've got a proper way of getting it. Then there's the other side, and this is the more difficult one to handle. Have you got an idea of what you want to use your your armed forces for in the future? Mm. It's a very difficult subject, and it's one that she has... Has, has yet to come across. Mm, because the suspicion is that perhaps uh, the Labour position may also move into more humanitarian work for the armed forces as well, and a bias that way. It's got to do that. And in, in fact, it, it does that in, in some ways. I mean, at the moment, the, the armed forces are in one way or another in about 27, 28 different countries. And mm. a lot of that is humanitarian operations. And whether it's training people to handle their own humanitarian operations, whether it's sort of flood disaster or, or whatever, doesn't actually matter. But the fact that you've got British forces doing it, as they've done traditionally, becomes more and more yeah. important. And at the same time, she's pledging that 2% of GDP to be spent on defence. But then we've got this terribly weak pound at the moment. I think the weak pound is, you know, it, it, that's something which this time next year you may say, we haven't got a weak pound, we've got a strong pound. And then all the Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, well, not necessarily, because all the exporters are making an absolute fortune out of selling their stuff because the pound is weak and therefore it's cheaper to buy. We'll be saying, oh, wish it, it was like in the old days, where the people who, when we've got a strong pound, who actually say, if we've got a strong pound, we can go out mm. and buy a lot of materials which we have to have in order to make things for defence. Mm. And so you've got an equal balance. I think it's the long term, though, the, the long term of the fiscal state of the United Kingdom is a worry whether you're a Conservative or a Labour Defence Minister. Mm. And just before we go, Christopher, I suppose I should say happy birthday to you. What, what's the age? <laughs> I don't know how old you are. I've never asked. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Boris 